Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey everyone, welcome to Chips, a soccer podcast with Vice Sports. I am one of your hosts, Aaron Gordon, a staff writer here at the Vice Sports office in Brooklyn, New York. God, it is dreadful weather here recently. Here I go again, talking about the weather to start off. This is the most exciting podcast in the world. Uh, Joining me on the line is someone who is not in the Brooklyn office. He is, in fact, in the London United Kingdom office. Will, why don't you tell the good people who you are? Well, I mean, you've pretty much quite quite successfully introduced me there. I'm a staff writer with Vice Sports, and I live in London. And yeah, yeah, that's going well for me so far. Excellent, excellent. Graduate of Cambridge University, if I'm not mistaken. That is true, yeah, but I don't want to talk about that on the podcast per se. Don't want to bore our readers with my graduate adventures. Why not? You went to one of the most esteemed universities in the world. Don't you want to brag about that as you, like, beat up the commoners and hit them with your walking sticks on regular occasion? This sounds like I asked you to say this before the beginning of the podcast and that now... I'm like taking the opportunity to be really faux modest and like, oh, I don't want to talk about it. And that actually I've prepped you with like lots of little kind of things you can say about my degree. But no, um, I genuinely don't want to talk about it. (laughs) People, he's actually lying. He did ask me to prompt him about beating up people with his walking stick on the street before we recorded. He takes great pride in his beating up of poor people abilities. (laughs) Anyways, we will actually talk about soccer and soccer-related things. This was a kind of interesting week. Like, I don't know. It feels like a lot happened. A lot of, like, weirdish things. This wasn't a very normal week of of soccering. I think to start, the biggest topic was Ryan Mason's head injury. He collided heads going up for a header with Gary Cahill, wasn't it, Will? It was, yeah. Mason went to the hospital. He had a fractured skull. It was very scary. He'll be okay. Like, the reports are, are positive coming out. But it was it was really weird because initially the English press was reporting on Mason's condition with the same fervor they report on, like, I don't know, some random transfer rumor. Like, just completely unnamed sources and passive voices about his condition before the club had even put out a statement. And nobody really knew what to believe. And it it made it quite obvious just how weird it is to report on people's health with the same journalistic rigor that they report on, like, transfer rumors, which is to say none at all. Not long after the club did put out a statement basically saying, like, yeah, he's he's in stable condition. But, I don't know, it was very weird. And I just don't really know what to make of the whole the whole thing and just it seemed like a lot of sports journalists were just completely caught off guard having to report on a serious potentially life-threatening situation yeah i think you could tell from the actual style of a lot of the articles that they were basically intended on capitalizing on the incident in terms of traffic just in the most cynical possible way so people were doing articles like who is ryan mason you know meet the man who's just had his skull fractured sort of thing you know those kind of who is ryan mason articles are basically intended to like 
be top of the Google rankings and get you as many clicks and as much traffic as possible. So, yeah, it was a kind of cynical way of reporting from the off. And then that really backfired when I think, well, I think it was the Daily Mirror actually published or at least tweeted story suggesting that he was fighting for his life, which obviously was, you know, in terms of the language that should have been used to describe his condition was hyperbole, I think we can say, and probably a bit irresponsible, to be honest. But obviously, in the uh, kind of online age, people are racing to get to the story first and have the details first. But then you also get the situation where people just completely factually overshoot the mark. And I think that's what happened with the Mason thing. You know, there was just uh, people were preempting the facts before they had happened and indeed as it turned out they, they never were going to happen you know Ryan Mason although had he had a very serious injury ultimately you know he was um he was treated and and in a stable condition as the as the club said so I think it kind of exemplifies a problematic thing about sports reporting in this country but how do the American press react to similar incidents in uh, you know other other sports in America Especially when it comes to, like, American football, which, you know, having a near-catastrophic injury is not exactly the rarest circumstance. Um, It seems to happen, like, once every couple of years where a player will get hit and just remain on the field motionless for, like, several extremely scary minutes where you wonder if you just watch someone die live on TV. And then they eventually get put on a stretcher and, like, carted off and, like, maybe they give the, like, heroic thumbs up as they're, like, being carted off the field, which always makes people feel good that they didn't actually, in fact, just watch someone die. But in terms of reporting on that person's condition afterwards, I think you get a couple of things. One is teams tend to be much quicker about putting out statements about the player's condition. They don't kind of just wait. Like, it really seemed like the reverse happened in this case, in Mason's case, that the press started relatively irresponsibly speculating about his condition, and then the club thought, oh, we better say something because there are all these reports that he's on death's door or something like that. We tend to see the exact opposite here, where the team will be very quick to put out a statement saying he's at the hospital, he's being treated, they expect him to make a recovery or, you know, he's in stable condition or something like that. And then the press just kind of forwards that along. So there's really no chance for them to put out something about the player's condition that might be reported irresponsibly because there's already that club statement out there that people can refer to. But the other thing is, you know, like I said, It just happens more often. Like, sports journalists know a bit more about the protocol to go through when a player seems to have a very serious injury. It's not this completely foreign circumstance they find themselves in, which isn't to say that I think American sports journalists have, like, you know, in general have higher standards than UK sports journalists. Maybe that's true. I don't know. But I think in this specific instance it's more just that they've already kind of gone through the protocol so many times that they know what to do and what not to do possibly it's also something to do with i mean i'm not entirely au fait with all aspects of the american press but i don't think you guys have tabloid culture in quite the same way that we do and you know i think the um i think the kind of tabloid outlets are especially um well they're they're writers anyway and their journalists are especially incentivized to you know drive traffic get the story as quickly as possible and report it with, let's say, uh, an ambiguous degree of accuracy as long as it's out there and first and SEO friendly. So, yeah, you know, there's potentially some problems there. I mean, that's essentially a bit of an insight into the industry. That's just how it works. Um, So, I mean, there's been a lot of extremely uh, kind of moralistic outrage about it on on Twitter and, and other kind of social media 
kind of outlets. I guess that's understandable and par for the course, but um, you know, just on a on a purely kind of factual level, that that is basically how it works. I mean, on a kind of different point, like you you were um, interested in the fact that Gary Cahill, despite the fact that he was basically seems to be con- at least partially concussed, continued to uh, to play the game. I mean, you you've obviously done a lot of articles and general research on head injuries in sport and stuff what did you think about that i don't really expect anything different from european soccer it's it, it this isn't to say that i think it's good like i obviously soccer is going to have a reckoning at some point about their concussion protocol i don't know when that point is going to be but european soccer especially is incredibly irresponsible when it comes to concussion protocols i mean gary cahill so Basically, the reason you want to get a player off the field as quickly as possible after they suffered a head injury is because of what's known as second impact syndrome, which basically means that if you get another significant head injury within a short period of time after receiving one, that the effects can compound and they can be, it can be incredibly dangerous. It can even lead to basically like sudden death if you get that second head injury. It's, it's a really dangerous situation. And Gary Cahill was playing after you know, I'm not just speculating here. Like his manager, uh, Antonio Conte, said after the game that during halftime, Cahill was not okay, but that he kept playing regardless. And I just think that's, you know, I know the culture is different, and I'm not I'm not saying that to justify it. Uh, I think they need they need to have a serious uh, discussion in I, I I mean English soccer, but it's certainly not just England. I think it's pretty much every European league about. Um, head injuries about about this stuff, and you know, skull fractures get the lion's share of attention um, because they're they're the most gruesome injuries. And you know, as we've seen with Mason, they can they can be the most viscerally uh, you know attention grabbing. But what happened to Cahill is potentially just as dangerous. And I don't know. I think I'm past the point of like finger wagging at this stuff, and you know, like sending off an angry tweet about it and being like, "Oh, Gary Cahill's concussion protocol." Blah blah blah. Like, it's just, uh, that feels so pointless. Um, I think everybody kind of knows the situation now, and it's just a matter of the FA not really feeling like they need to do anything about it, uh, anything serious about it, at least. Yeah, there's definitely, it's interesting what you said about it being a cultural phenomenon in some ways, because I think there's there's definitely an element to which it's kind of driven by machismo, this idea that, you know, we admire players for, like, playing through injury and, you know, sticking sticking, like, themselves in the mix and just being on the pitch at all times but with a concussion it's kind of beyond that like it's not it's now something more serious than whatever goes on within the confines of a football match you know I think we've seen with you know kind of um, incipient links like scientific links between uh, you know head injuries in all sports but but football as well and you know dementia and potential other like you know, um, brain diseases in later life, that this stuff is like really critically, critically serious and is not kind of, you know, we shouldn't be like treating it with a kind of bit of a wink and a nudge and a kind of fond, oh, well, it's great that the players stayed on the field. You know, that's the kind of attitude we want to see. You know, it it doesn't really matter, matter what your attitude as a professional is like if you end up getting dementia at the age of 65 or something. So I guess we do. I mean, I'm not saying that the link's that clear, but there is a link and we need to make sure that we're kind of serious about it, I guess. But, you know, in England, I think there's or in Britain, there's, you know, it's not just football as well. You know, there's there's rugby union, which is 
notoriously kind of has been poor at times in terms of dealing with concussions. And I think just in sport in general, you're right, not just in Britain, but in Europe and, you know, as well, you know, in America with different sports, there's just a kind of, we need to have a kind of understand, a revolution of understanding in terms of, you know, neuropathology and just generally understanding that basically if you get a whack on the head and you're concussed, you must stop engaging in physical sport and you have to, like, give yourself time to recover, basically. My thinking on this issue has, has kind of changed a little bit over the past couple of, I would say, like, two years, kind of watching what's happening in the NFL. I mean, the NFL had, a, had about as big of a reckoning on this issue as you could possibly fathom. They found out that a lot of their players, partially due to changing brain structure as a result of getting hit in the head thousands of times over their lives— you know, started to suffer dementia in, the, in their 40s. I mean, it's it's un, it, it was at the time unfathomable, some of the revelations that came forward. Uh, and I think by and large, we've seen that very little has changed. You know, the, the, the NFL likes to talk about how many changes they've made. But really, I mean, you watch the game a decade ago versus the game today, and it's, it's essentially the same. uh, The changes are on the margins at best, and most of what the league does is pure PR. It's just to make people feel better about the game and not actually address the fundamental problem. This isn't to say that soccer's problem is as big as what the NFL is dealing with. It's certainly not. Um, Soccer's problem is much more manageable. The head trauma is not as severe. It mostly comes from players, you know, exactly like the Mason injury, players going up to head a ball at the same time and making contact with each other rather than the ball. Uh, it's, It's a much more manageable problem. They just need to have a more effective protocol to take players out of the game. But players don't want to come out of the game because they make their living playing the game and having this, like you say, machismo um, attitude. Uh, It's not an easy problem to solve. And I don't necessarily think that mandating a certain protocol will solve the problem. It's a culture change. And it's been an incredibly ineffective culture change in the U.S. And I don't really have any reason to believe it would be more effective in the UK. Like, it's just, it's a very difficult problem. Yeah, no, I, I don't think it will be more effective in the UK because, as, as you said, you know, the NFL is a more kind of visceral issue in that there's, you know, massive physical hits going in all the time. I mean, football, in some ways, is a lot more kind of nebulous and incremental in the way that, you know, um, the medical effects, the long-term medical effects of head injuries manifest themselves. But it's it's kind of no less serious, I guess, in the long run in that, if, as some people have tentatively suggested, there is a link between even just repeatedly heading footballs, but also, as you say, mainly from clashes between players, you know, elbow to head or head to head or whatever, you know, if, if there is a link between that and dementia or Parkinson's or other kind of neuropathological diseases, then, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty damn serious. So it's quite depressing, really, I guess, that you're right. I mean, it seems quite unlikely that if the NFL are just kind of managing it in a PR-y kind of way, it seems unlikely that the FA or that, you know, other sports are going to are gonna take that threat seriously. Yeah, and I think going back to kind of how this conversation started, the gravity of this, you know, problem is so, like, brutally and just horribly juxtaposed by, like, what was it, the son who's like, meet the wag, who's by Ryan Mason's bedside as he recovers from his injury. Yeah. And it's just, there's just, uh, which which was a real article for fuck's sake. Like, I just don't know how anyone justifies that, like publishing that garbage. Um, 
But yeah. wag culture is a conversation for a, an, another episode of Chips, I think. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're right. I, broadly, it is. But, I mean, I think that stood out as being especially despicable. And, I don't know, you know, it's one thing cynically driving traffic, which in many ways is not ideal, but, you know, exploiting someone's serious head injury so that you can basically, you know, appeal to a sort of mild prurience amongst your readers by, you know, showing off their girlfriend or wife or fiancé or whatever is is deeply, deeply unpleasant. And, yeah, I think they're also in the piece it said something like Ryan Mason, who pr- only proposed to his girlfriend 10 weeks ago and she now is at his bedside and stuff. And you kind of think... These two, there's no causality here. There's no link. These things are two completely unrelated facts that are being arbitrarily put together. So you can basically say like wags, tits, like it's you know it's fucking disgraceful. Well, basically, it's fucking disgraceful. Wag culture in general is disgraceful, but in this context, it's just unfathomably dumb. We don't need to get into this now. I'm afraid we we're about to, so I'm cutting us off. Speaking of incredibly violent contact between two humans, Arsene Wenger is about to be punished by the FA. They've already launched the investigation for shoving the fourth official during the Arsenal-Burnley match. I hesitate to call it shoving because, to be perfectly honest, I think this was not really a shove. I've watched the replay, I've broken it down, and basically he puts his hands on the fourth official and very, very gently extends them. There was no power behind the push. It was merely to establish some space for himself, I thought. I'm biased. Like, I mean, I, I love Vanger. He's a, basically my, my dad, and I love him. So I am biased. But at the same time, I really think calling it a shove is basically not accurate. That being said, he's almost certainly going to get, what, a game or two touchline ban, maybe more. Some people were calling for, like, ten games, which is fucking absurd if you ask me. But anyways, I don't want to talk about the shove so much itself, although, Will, if you disagree with me about the severity of it, you should you should weigh in. But I also want to ask whether it's okay to beat up the fourth official. Because I feel like it is, to be perfectly honest. I think you should be able to go to town on the fourth official. What do you think? Uh, well, I suppose the fourth official is sort of like a bit of an existential punch bag, aren't they? Because they basically stand there and have two managers scream in their face for 90 minutes. It's quite a sort of masochistic exercise, I guess, being the fourth official. I'm not sure I'd go as far as to say that they should be, like, physically beaten. I mean, you know, there's masochism and then there's masochism, isn't there? Like, you know... I don't think they need to wear like any form of like rubber mask or anything. Just to be there is painful enough. But I think Arsene, he gets away with things to an extent because he is seen as like one of the more civilised kind of guys in the Premier League, mainly because he drinks fine wine and is French and doesn't look like Sean Dyche. He obviously, as you say, you know, he's going to get charged. He should probably get a couple of matches in terms of a touchline ban. But I've seen some, I mean, as you said, the thing about the um, the 10 match ban suggestion, there have been some incredibly pompous kind of ruminations and hot takes by some people over how many um, games he should be banned for. I mean, it was a pretty minor I mean, Luis, Luis Suarez got 10 games for biting someone. Yeah, and, you know, I think the, <laughs> the, the best comparison is there's a guy called John Sheridan, who I think was a, a League Two manager until recently, and he's just recently been cited for... I think he's re- he was sacked not too long ago, but he was cited for basically an absolutely atrocious kind of tirade against the fourth official and the possibly the linesman and the referee as well, in which he basically called everyone um, a cunt. Um, and so that was obviously 
quite severe, and the details of it are all available, you know, on Twitter and, and etc. It was a uh, it was kind of held up as something quite extreme, and he got a five match ban. So it's very very difficult for me to see how anyone can possibly justify Arsene Wenger getting a ten match ban for what was you know a fairly innocuous incident. Um, I, I personally think that there's a lot of people who want to be seen as taking the highest possible high ground over, you know, referees and officials. And, you know, yeah, the referee needs protection and the officials need protection, but I'm not sure they need protection from, like, a French guy in his late 60s who's just being a bit grumpy so much as from, like, really, really angry players. I don't really understand the... the desire to be the man taking the highest ground on what you can do to the fourth official considering the fourth officials like 90% of their job is to take abuse from the managers during the game I mean if, if you really are looking out for the fourth official maybe the fourth official should be unapproachable by the managers I mean it's a I I don't how many times during a game will the camera cut to a manager just laying into the fourth official and the fourth official just like having this thousand mile blank <laughs> stare going out towards the center circle because they don't want to acknowledge the manager is right at their ear, like getting ready to give them a wet willy. Like I just the 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 shove to me is such a minor extension of that basic philosophy of what the fourth official's job is, which is to be a proverbial punching bag for these guys. Like, if you really don't want this to ever happen, this the, the approach to take isn't a law and order approach. It's to re-envision what a fourth official is supposed to be there for. Or just, I mean, don't have a fourth official there. I mean, what? I mean, as far as I can tell, the fourth official mediates between the managers and stops anything going on in the technical area and holds up the sign for extra time. Well, why not just let the managers go at each other? And, and put, like, make sure the, the players' uniforms like are up to code before they come on as subs or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or just, you know, if you want to put substitutions up on an electronic board, like, that's separate to a human being's arms, I'm sure that would work. <laughs> we probably, we have the technology now as a human race, don't we? So, yeah, just stick a sort of light bulb sign there, I guess. I want to go the opposite direction. I want managers to be able to do whatever the fuck they want to do to the fourth official keeping in mind that the fourth official can still use regular legal channels to press charges and such if they if they feel it's appropriate i don't think they should be above the law but i think in terms of like the laws of the game like let the managers like how amazing would it be if the if the managers just had to use like their their own regular decorum shields to manage their interactions with the fourth official like i just don't, i don't understand why there have to be special rules protecting the fourth official like if the manager wants to punch the fourth official and then get you know charged in court for doing so i think they should i think they should just go for it i like it that you've qualified that you you do think the fourth official should have like legal rights as a citizen of, <laughs> of the world like rather than them just being the minute you become a fourth official, you're just disenfranchised as a human being, and like. Well, I feel like I feel like it's important to add that because a lot of what happens on sports fields would not be legal if you did it outside of a sports field. So yeah, if I like went out and two footed tackled someone down at Pretmonger, <laughs> I might get in trouble. Yeah. So I do think it's an important an important qualifier, actually. Like, yes, the fourth official still holds his legal, you know, go uh, government given <laughs> rights. But that being said, like. I don't understand. I, I don't know. I think this idea that like, oh, the the seventy year old manager gently pushed 
a much younger, fitter man who didn't even fall down. Like, he basically took one step backwards as a result of this very gentle shove. And now we must reckon with this action as one of the great affronts to the game of the year. Like, give, give me a fucking break. Maybe what you're saying is Anthony Taylor should have dived. Like, Arson should have pushed Yes. His, he should have held his face and, like, fallen to the, tu- to the floor of the tunnel and rolled about until Arson was re- removed <laughs> from the stadium. I mean, I actually think that would have been much more entertaining. So, I mean, that's an idea idea as well maybe the fourth official should start diving i agree fourth official should absolutely start diving like next time next time Mourinho and klopp like get all up in each other's faces with the fourth official like caught between he should wait for like Mourinho's hand to go <laughs> slightly above his chest and then just absolutely grab his face fall to the ground throw the video board up in the air dramatically you see the like fourth official just peeking between his fingers seeing the referee send him off you know like going full Sergio Busquets on it and just kind of making sure that he's he's had the right he's made the right impression on the ref or goes full Pepe and just rolls for like 25 feet grabbing his face ends up somewhere around the center circle as you know everyone fights above him yeah i i think this is this is the way forward speaking of the way forward there is a new banner at Emirates Stadium this week. I don't know if you've heard about it, Will. Nobody's been talking about it. It's very strange. I think this is a combination of my favorite sports story of the year and also the dumbest sports story of the year. So quick recap. Alexis Sanchez has two wonderful golden retriever dogs who he loves very much. Their names are Adam and Humber, and he posts about them constantly on Instagram. And Fans like the dogs because they're good, cute dogs, and Alexis likes his dogs, and it's just, it's it's a nice story. At the same time, Alexis has not re-signed a contract at Arsenal. Initially, these were two completely separate stories, but one Arsenal fan group decided to make them one story and thought that maybe if they put up a banner for Adam and Humber in Emirates Stadium, this would convince Alexis that this was the place for him, that he was beloved here, and he he and his family of dogs are welcome to stay, and they should. So through crowdfunding, the fan group raised 500 pounds, they made a banner, they put it up, and lots of Arsenal fans were apparently unhappy about this. I can't even say it. I I can't even say it without adding a question mark to the end because I just don't understand how someone could be so, like, self-righteously serious about the dumbest thing ever that they can actually get upset over this. But some people were. Uh, Will, why were people upset over this? Of all the things to, to bring out a flaming hot take about, the kind of symbolism of Alexis Sanchez's dog banner is probably the stupidest of all time. I've even seen people drawing conclusions as wildly diverse as things like, well, the fact that Arsenal fans have a banner of dogs in their stadium shows well they'll tolerate mediocrity. And I'm like, does it though? I really really feel that there's no link between those two things whatsoever. I I mean, you know, basically... It's an irreverent thing. It's quite funny. Like, maybe we should have more of this in football as opposed to, like, captain leader legend fucking banners that are just the most pretentious thing on the planet. You know, this is kind of funny. It's something probably for the social media age, maybe. So maybe, like, 60-year-old plumbers at Arsenal won't find it hilarious. But, I mean, ultimately, if you're getting worked up about a banner of um, Alexis Sanchez's dogs, you're probably a dickhead and have 
most likely gone for a recent divorce, I would say. Or just, you know, doesn't like dogs to begin with and therefore is just a terrible human. No, no, because I'm, I'm not that big on dogs. I, I don't, you know, I prefer cats, but like, you know, I'm not angry about it. I'm glad we've, we've brought this up because you and I have debated, you know, the, the kind of Alexis Sanchez's dog love many times before and to, like, to be fair there's been no debate i say <laughs> something that's objectively correct and then you say something awful that's going to get you sent to hell no you're like oh the dogs are so cute and i'm like who cares about the dogs stop putting them on instagram like just take them for a walk without taking a picture of them or you know filming Dude, you're, them you're the one who sounds Brian like a Adams. fucking 60 year old plumber now it just went through a recent divorce Ugh, who cares about cute dogs don't don't show them to me god who, who could want to see that <laughs> look all right i've got no fondness for our canine friends but nonetheless i recognize that it's overly curmudgeonly to get annoyed or angry about a banner displaying their apparently allegedly um lovable faces i can't believe you don't like dogs will well i'm sorry to disappoint you but they're smelly and they aren't as affectionate as everyone says they are have you just had like not great dogs or just been around not great dogs? What's where's the where's the root of this obvious trauma? This is a real tangent now. I feel like we're not, you know, this isn't like a a dog grooming podcast. This is a sports podcast. We've got to stay sporty. Maybe we will become a dog grooming podcast, will? Maybe. I mean, it's imp- it's important to be to be nimble in this 21st century economy and pivot when necessary. What channel would that go out on? What Vice channel? We don't have a dog grooming channel. We've done many posts about dogs and Vice Sports. I feel like it's still an appropriate channel, to be honest. Fez. What did the American uh, Arsenal fan base think of the, uh, the, the denigration of Alexis, Alexis Sanchez's dogs? I mean, obviously nobody like signs their tweets with, you know, I am an American or <laughs> I am a Brit. So it's sometimes hard to like separate the two, you know, unless they use obvious words like, I don't know, uh, tea. Like, no Americans say tea. We don't drink that shit. Uh, <laughs> seriously, though, it is like, it's it's hard to say, but at the same time, I really didn't detect anyone in the American soccer world who was like, no, this desecrates the <laughs> the totally the totally sacred sport for which I have been a fan for 12 years. You know, just like, I think the complete lack of tradition from American sports fans when it comes to soccer makes us not very predisposed to get outraged over something like this. Yeah, maybe maybe uh, British football fans have a bit of a chip on their shoulder in terms of keeping things serious and reverent. But um, I, think, I think, weirdly, the Arsenal fan base is quite famous for irreverence. I mean, like, you know, this is a club that once had Emmanuel Abue playing for them. Like, you know, it's not like Arsenal fans are the most serious people on the planet. So... You know, I, I did, I've actually, a friend of mine once went to an Arsenal game with a uh, banner that said Vote Abue on it. Um, I think it was before the, before the 2010 general election. It said, like, Vote Abue on May the 6th or something like that. And uh, it ended up going viral in Spain and getting a lot of Spanish <laughs> people who just found it really, really funny. Um, I'm glad I've got the opportunity to tell this anecdote now, even though it's got nothing to do with, with uh, Alexis Sanchez's dogs, but... Yeah, there you no, go. It's a good story. Bad banners at the Emirates are a tradition, so anyone who doesn't like it can get fucked. No, I, I think that's exactly right, and uh, it did strike me as weird because one of the things I've always kind of liked about a certain section of the Arsenal fan base is just this 
uh, like whimsicality almost like there's just this acceptance that like yeah we'd like to win a title but fuck it we're we're kind of not doing that lately so let's just try and enjoy things as much as we can anyways and you know Abue became like kind of a cult figure even though he really wasn't good like I think that's pretty um uncontroversial to say uh yeah so I don't know it's just like it was just a weird thing. I thought this would be something that we could all agree was good, or at least all agree was kind of funny in the slightest way, and apparently we can't even do that. So, I don't know. Fuck it all, I guess. The world is full of irreconcilably different opinions, and uh, basically the miserable bastards are winning the day, it seems. Is it? Do you think there's any chance that like people were just like, I don't know, gaslighting us, essentially. Like, no, this banner is bad. Like, just to just to see people fight about whether a banner about two cute dogs is is, a, is bad. Like, is there a chance that this was never a sincere thing to begin with? Yeah, that, that's quite genius to think that maybe the people who made the banner are, like, self-referentially start trying to start a fight within the fan base. Oh, I wasn't even thinking that. That's pretty <laughs> That's pretty devious. I was just thinking the people who were, like, outraged over it, like, weren't really outraged. Like, they were just trying to, like, start something. Yeah, oh, possibly. No, I, I prefer the devious option that it was, like, some sort of, like, metaphorical comment on modern football fandom. But, um, yeah, I mean, in fairness, I think the Arsenal fan base are primed to argue amongst themselves about pretty much any event at the moment. And it generally divides itself along, like you know, Wenger out, Wenger in lines. Even when it comes to Sanchez's dogs, it very quickly descends into that kind of bollocks. So, yeah, basically, you know, I don't know. If there's any fan base that's going to argue over something as utterly trivial and meaningless as a dog banner, it's the Arsenal fan base at the moment. Speaking of arguing about trivial and meaningless things, we have some reader questions. Uh, And yes, I call them reader questions because I I listen to another Vice Sports podcast called Biscuits, which with... uh, Dave Lozo and Sean McIndoe, very funny podcast. I, I like I like it a lot. They talk about hockey, but, you know, so, like, I don't know if any British people will listen to it. But it's a good podcast. You should listen to it. They they accidentally called their uh, listeners readers in episode one and have just been doing it since. And I accidentally did it in our first episode, too. So I'm going to continue the tradition in their mold. So uh, we have some reader questions, uh, which we will answer now. Um First question came via email from Nicholas Arjona. Sorry if I'm accidentally adding a Spanish accent to your name, but that's how I interpreted it. Uh, He asked, why do American soccer fans always have to compare soccer to other sports in the U.S. in terms of popularity or TV ratings and such? Why can't they just enjoy soccer in the U.S. and its own independent growth? This is a good question, and it it kind of – it gets at a lot of different dynamics going on in American soccer and in American sports in general, just kind of American attitudes towards always needing to be the best or the biggest or the greatest or whatever. Um, I think we just elected a a president based on that very idea, and it's – I don't know. It's something I've been thinking about for a long time, especially like five around like five to eight years ago when soccer really was a very distant, like fifth most popular sport in the U.S. And it really didn't make any sense to compare it to the bigger sports. I think it's it's kind of getting more and more sensical to do it now. Um But, you know, like five to eight years ago, soccer wasn't even close, but people still wanted to compare like, you know, MLS ratings or EPL ratings to, uh, you know, like the NBA playoffs for some reason. I don't really know why it is. I think 
a lot of it plays into the fact that Americans have been looking for soccer to be the next most popular sport uh, for decades and decades, actually even centuries. Like, he goes back to the early 1900s. So I think a lot of it is just that, like, perennial uh, attitude. And But I don't think there really is any good answer. I just think Americans like comparing things, and they like uh, they like comparing the thing they like to a more popular thing and wondering why other people don't also like their not-as-popular thing. But I'm with Nicholas. It doesn't bother me. I don't care. I just I just like watching soccer. I actually don't want it to get any more popular because then it's going to be as... I don't know. This is probably like the most vice hipster, hip, hipsterish thing I will ever say. But I don't really want soccer to get much more popular than it is now because then it's going to get really annoying coverage and it's going to get blanket wall-to-wall bullshit press like, you know... Uh, terrible columns even more so than we have now and it just won't be it it won't be like its own little corner it'll be pervasive you'll get so many people writing bad takes about it like even more so than they are we'll basically become like what it is in the uk and i don't want that yeah i mean it's actually not so bad here like you make it sound like some sort of football dystopia where like we literally just talk about football all the time and like can't stop talking about football, looking at football scores, reading bad football hot takes. Like, you know, sometimes we go to the park, sometimes we do other things, you know, speak to our families. Like, it's not that bad. In, like, episode two, didn't we talk about how uh, the entire point of festive football was so that you didn't have to talk to your family? Yeah, but that's at Christmas. That's because you're forced together with your family. Like, you know, I'm saying the, the members of your family you actually want to talk to. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean that's true, but it, and and but at the same time, I think it's inarguable that the the soccer coverage there is like worse in that there's more of it, but there's not more to say, so therefore there's just more junk. Possibly, yeah. I mean, if you read all of the sum total of it, which would be quite a sort of gargantuan intellectual task, you would probably find a, a, a high proportion of complete shit. But you know, I mean, some people like that, don't they? There's a market for it, so I guess roll it out. I guess my thing is, like, right now what we see is every once in a while some outsider, and I don't even mean outsider like non-sports writer, I just mean non-soccer writer, will write something about problems in the American soccer community or world or something, and the entire American soccer Twitter will jump on this person and just harass them, be like, you don't know what you're talking about, we're a wonderful community of, of diverse people who love each other very much, and it's <laughs> it's one of the funniest things, like, I... I honestly, I want to create a ghost writer account, like a ghost pen name, and just start pitching these articles to like random media publications just to see people freak out about it because it's the funniest thing in the world. And I don't want to lose that. I don't want to lose completely, like, completely, uh, you know, in their own head soccer fans to uh, not stop freaking out about that. So I guess that's what I'm yeah, afraid of. Yeah, it does. I mean, just from an outsider's perspective, or it, it often seems like there's quite a lot of angst in American soccer in that there's like, there's quite a lot of, like you say, comparing it to other sports, but also comparing American soccer to soccer in Europe and, you know, football elsewhere. And it's kind of like, I don't know, just, just enjoy it, lads, you know, don't, um, and ladies, you know, don't, don't, it doesn't have to be anything it isn't. I just, you know, like the kind of, I don't know, you know, you don't have to recreate ultra culture from like the Syria to have a great time. Like, you know, you can just <laughs> just enjoy it your American way, your special kooky American way. You know, I'm sure I'm sure in a future episode I will just rail on MLS for a while or something. But 
honestly, I don't, I don't hate MLS. It's, it's, it's a fine league, and I completely agree with you. Like, it's a local sport. It's a local league. You can go and watch some decent live soccer. It's fine. Like, you know, it is what it is. The problem is that, and this is where I think a lot of this attitude comes from, or at least it doesn't help, is that the commissioner just routinely gives these press conferences where he talks about the goal of the league is to be one of the biggest, most popular, best leagues. And he always gives these hilarious time frames for it, like within five years or by 2025 or, you know, whatever. And it's like, that's never going to happen. And now it's just setting this ridiculous expectation amongst fans, amongst observers, amongst and maybe even players. I don't know. That just like for this completely unreasonable goal. And I think that fuels a lot of it, to be honest. Like it's this American, very American ambition, like outsized ambition that just doesn't really have any basis in reality and kind of obscures a lot of the progress that's been made in terms of the game growing in the country. Because instead of talking about like, hey, MLS is actually like a decent league to watch now. Like it's not perfect, but you can turn it on and have fun watching. Instead of talking about that, we're talking about when is the league going to be among Europe's top four in terms of quality. And it's just, it doesn't, it's not helpful. And I think that's, you know, to get back to Nicholas's question, I think that's where a lot of the, the constant comparison comes from. It comes from the executives of the, of our own league. Yeah. I mean, it's not just not helpful. I'd say it's probably actually like actively counterproductive in that if you're constantly trying to like model yourself on, you know, more established leagues, the reality is you're probably sabotaging your own attempts to, you know, do the things you need to do to really make your own league thrive, like have great, you know, make sure it's about grassroots, make sure it's about the fans, make sure the experience is good, the atmosphere is good. You know, it's not about aping something else. It's about creating something authentic. So, yeah, I guess, I guess, I mean, that's not meant to be a blanket judgment. I, you know, I am an ignorant Brit in this uh, regard. But that's just a kind of general observation, I guess. Let's get on to the other two questions we have here before we before we check out. Uh, the next one came from Twitter uh, from Julian McKenzie, who goes by at Julian the Intern. Uh, don't worry, Julian. I'm sure you'll make it someday. Uh, at what percent chance would you say that Griezmann will sign with Manchester United this summer? Will? Um, I mean. Actually, if you're going to ask us questions like that, mate, maybe you're going to stay an intern. Yeah, that's a terrible question. I mean, I don't know, 30%. You know, Julian was kind enough to send us a question and you just, you know, shit on him. Like, I don't think that's necessary, Will. I think you should apologize. I'm not going to apologize to Julian the intern. Make me a cup of tea, Julian. Fuck, I don't want to be... I, I, I am so glad I was never... Do you have an intern? Because if so, I'm going to email them and tell them some things you have told me at the pub uh, to make when I was over there to make sure you don't fuck with them anymore. No, the truth is I, I don't have an intern. And if I did, I'd probably I'd treat them nicely and with respect. But I would hope so. Anyways, uh, I say 40%. Moving on. Uh, Sean Stevens, who goes by at SPC Stevens, uh, asked the perennial question that we always get whenever somebody, whenever we put out a call for questions, so it's time to just answer it. Uh, will ProRail ever happen in the U.S.? What? Will Pro- <laughs> Have you have you heard of this thing called Pro Rel? What are you talking about? <laughs> P- promotion and relegation system. You know the whole thing about like 
Your country invented it. How do you not know what this is? I know, I know what promotion and relegation are, mate. I just don't know what pro-rel is. You guys don't call it pro-rel? No. What's pro-rel? <laughs> okay, so the, the, uh, the way you write it out is pro-slash-rel, which is to say promotion and relegation. <laughs> Since Americans argue about this so much, we had to come up with an abbreviation for it because it gets annoying typing out promotion and relegation all the time. Right, my first bit of guilt-edged advice to American football is get rid of pro-rel and just write promotion and relegation like everybody else and don't try to abbreviate it. No, I'm not, I'm not engaging with pro-rel. I had no idea that the term pro-rel was so controversial. We should, this can be the new soccer. This can be the new term that we, our two, our two respective fan bases argue about all the time. I'm aware that I've gone very, like, soccer on this, and I'm like, what? You Americans with your American terminology? <laughs> but, like, you know, sorry about that. But I was very confused, and, I mean, I am slightly the wiser but no more enthusiastic about pro-rel. Well, I mean, as we've... T- I-, I think we've talked about this before, not on the podcast, but that, like, the U... Like, Brits just don't abbreviate nearly as much as Americans do. Like, the, the uh, EPL, you guys don't say that, which I've been... I mean, you guys must waste... There must be so many wasted man hours in your entire country with people saying English Premier League or the, or just the Premier League instead of EPL. Like, think of all the economic productivity you guys are losing. Yeah, but we're saying it properly, aren't we? I don't know. Are you? Yes. <laughs> Anyways, Sean, the answer to your question is no. There will never be pro-rel in the U.S. because there's just too much money in not having it. Uh, and there's no incentive for the league to enact it ever. There's just no there's no reason for them to do it. Pro-rel is a wonderful thing that the English invented when they were stupider and didn't care about making money. And now that the entire world is driven by money and not by actual entertainment, there's no reason for any league in the future to ever go from non-promotion and relegation to promotion and relegation. In fact, we'll probably even see the opposite. I bet one day some European league will stop doing promotion and relegation and it will create a title flow. And in 50 years, no league will be doing pro-rel. That's my, that's my hot take. I think in 50 years, there will be no more pro-rel. I've killed Will with my hot take. Will is no, dead. I, I, I was just, I was just stunned. But also, you did, you did actually cut out for like five seconds, so I missed some of your hot take. Did you? You didn't hear the end of my hot take? No, no, no. Hey, leave it for the podcast. I'll listen it back tomorrow, and it'll be more exciting. All right. So you won't even. Re- it's like a mystery hot take. Ooh, I like that mystery hot. I'm gonna start like a, a column <laughs> called Mystery Hot Take, where I rant about something for the entire column and don't say what it is that I'm actually angry about, and let readers guess what I'm actually ranting about. That sounds great. This needs to be a new feature of the podcast right at the end, where you just come <laughs> you come out with a completely non-specific judgment, and then readers have to trace back your logic to find out what the hell you're going on about. Oh, I like this idea. I like this idea a lot, but it'll have to wait for another week to fully bore out because we've been we've been going on long enough. Will, do you have anything for the people before we check out? Um, just uh, just a plug for my uh, I wrote um, we do a series called The Cult um, on Vice Sports UK, and uh, I wrote something on Roy of the Rovers, who's a kind of cartoon um, footballer who's quite famous in England, and uh, you should read that. His life was uh, his life was very tragic, so. Yeah, read my uh, read my tragic tale of Roy of the Rovers. 
Excellent. And uh, last week I wrote something about how Paul Ryan, who is now the Speaker of the House, uh, faked the weightlifting photo that is so famous from 2012 and how he actually used lighter dumbbells than uh, advertised. It's completely serious, is not at all satire. And please tweet at me your very earnest uh, commentary on why I am wrong. Uh, I think that's about, I think that does about, uh, I think that about does it for this yeah. week, Will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm done. I'm done. Goodbye. Goodbye.